those of you that are here for the first time, welcome. We're super glad you're here. Um, we have been on this sort of journey for 16 weeks. We, we like to do this. We like to work through Scripture as a whole. Seeing God's move and His Word in its context is really important. I want you to fall in love with the Word of God. If I had one single desire for our church as a whole and for you as individuals, it would be that you would fall in love with the Word of God. It is transformative. It is the baseline. It is everything that we need, every access point to who God is. We know that an encounter with God's Word is actually an encounter with God. It is not an instruction manual for our life. It is God's very love letter poured out for us. And therefore, all of who God is is wrapped up in it. And so if there's a piece of what we do on Sunday that I want you to absolutely love, it's not handshakes and donuts and worship. It's God's Word. Like, I want you to fall in love with it. And so we work through it and we teach through it and we see what it comes, along, comes from it along the way. And for the past 16 weeks, we've been exploring 1 Peter. In a series that we've entitled Call to Life, only because I chose that title only because there's really two real principles that Peter in the, in the book of 1 Peter that I want us to really anchor our souls to. And those two things are kind of traced throughout, and, and they were these two ideas. One, that you are not alone. A lot of our lives are built on a, a lie that we are alone in our suffering, that we are alone in our struggle, that we are alone in our fears. And we look around us, and everybody in our, in our world seems to have something good going on. Their family is together. Life is working out. They don't have any financial problems. They travel all over the world. They're doing all these things. Their life looks great. But inside me, inside my heart, I have fears and anxieties and worries, and some of those things are very real, and some of them are, are plaguing me. Some of them are real struggles that I don't know how to get out of or battle through, and, and I'm suffering at the hands of, and as we've looked at over time, over this whole study, suffering at the hands of unjust governments or, or unjust people or bosses or in broken marriages, right, with unjust husbands. We've talked about all these pieces, suffering for being a believer, suffering for this. Even when I'm doing things that I think are right, things still don't go my way. We've talked about the idea that suffering oftentimes brings about loneliness because we believe we're the only ones walking through it. But what 1 Peter has opened our eyes to in a beautifully transparent way is that you are not alone, that other believers are walking through what you're walking through. And not only that, but God promises never to leave us nor forsake us. He is the very Emmanuel, right? He is God with us. And therefore, we have this promise that God's presence, His very presence is with us. So the first thing that we learn in our entire study is that you are not alone. And your fears and failures don't define you, but we are called to press into a loving, faithful Creator God. The second thing we've kind of looked at along the way is that we have been called to something bigger, something greater. We've been called to life. We're not called to merely exist, to take up space, to do as many good things as we possibly can and then die. We are called to a meaningful, true, real, abundant life that in every one of life's moments there's hope and joy and purpose, even in the ones that are really hard. We tend to think that the good things only come when life is good and that suffering, as fast as we can get out of it, is probably the best thing for us and the best answer. We alleviate the suffering, get it to the other side and see what God has done. What we've learned from 1 Peter is that in the middle of suffering, in the middle of struggle and fear and all those things that sort of wrap up in heartache and hurt, God is still moving and at work. And even in those moments, even those little places, there's hope and joy and purpose. God is always on the move. He is always working and moving, meaning even in the deepest and darkest and most difficult times in your life, God is working for his glory and his purpose. And you have been called to life even in those moments. Your call is not to get to the other side, to make it out as fast as you can, and to make sure that you get relief from your struggles. But your goal is to become more like Christ as you walk through life's difficulties because in those moments there's hope and joy and purpose. And First Peter has encapsulated those truths. 
And we've come to the end. We're looking at the last just few verses in a real simple, short kind of way. Peter is going to give us a few exit remarks, remind us of a couple of things, and send us on our way. And it's going to end without giant fanfare, all those kind of things, just with simple gospel truth. And so that's where Peter's going to take us and where we're going to wrap up and we're going to be moving into some new things over the next couple of weeks that I'm excited about and be unpacking for you in the next weeks as they come and, uh, and bring those ideas uh, to our community. But this morning, we're going to tie a bow on First Peter and see where he leaves us. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to be in the last two, three verses there, starting in 12, going down through 14. And we're going to look at a few exit remarks, a few thank yous, a few high fives, and a, uh, a few reminders that I think are really powerful as we tie those two pieces together, right? That you are not alone, that you've been called to life into this incredible gospel picture that Peter's given us. So as you turn there, let's take a moment. I know we've done a lot of praying, but let's just take a quick one before the Lord and ask him to teach our hearts this morning. God, we thank you just for the quick moment to gather here, to open your word, to realize that it is alive. It is not some dead book. It is alive. It is your breath. And so, God, I know that you'll teach us this morning. I believe that. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you, just to whisper something true to your heart, to instruct your heart, to give you hope, encouragement, whatever that may be. God, teach my heart this morning. Take a moment as we do each week, and pray for someone around you or in front of you, behind you, even if you know their name or even if you don't, pray for them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. Pray that God would move in the life of somebody else. Be a champion for someone else. Lord, as we close your letter, the one that you authored on the heart of Peter, God, I pray that you would instruct us and teach us, uh, breathe life into us and remind us of what we've walked through over the past 16 weeks. We're grateful for your faithfulness, and we ask this in your risen and holy name. Amen. So we got three verses, just wrap-up verses, right? Nothing fancy, nothing too elaborate, just some closing remarks, a few handshakes on the way out, and a couple of reminders, and Peter's going to sign his name, right? That's how this letter is basically going to end. And this is kind of where we leave everything in verse 12. Peter says this, With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love, and peace to all of you who are in Christ. So we don't write letters anymore, but letters are pretty awesome, right? Handwritten letters, those of you that are old enough to have written letters or have gone to camp or something, handwritten letters are awesome. When Meredith and I first started dating, um, Several moons ago, uh, we didn't have the internet, right? That's how old I am. We didn't have the internet. Uh, we had a calling card, and we wrote each other letters. I was in college, and she was in college, and we wrote literally wrote letters to each other. I know it's unbelievable. That's how we dated for two years. In this way, I would write a letter, and then I would call and talk to her for two hours, and my dad would call and yell at me. Right? Could you believe the calling card was that expensive? How do you spend three hundred dollars in one week? I'm like, I don't know. She's kind of hot. I don't know. I just. Want to talk to her. 
And uh, I would have to defuse that situation. Then I'd write more letters saying I can't call anymore. Then I would call every night. And we did that for two years. Then I transferred over, and it was much easier when you can actually talk to each other face-to-face. Way before FaceTime, the Internet, Instachamp, whatever, all that stuff is like all way before that, right? Um, but letters are really cool because they're, they're a part of our soul. They, we write things in them. We address people in them. And this is how the gospel was communicated often in the first century was when Paul or Peter, these guys would go missionary journeys, and they would share things verbally, and they would leave a church, and they would send letters to follow up and encouragement, and they would write these really personal things, and they would say, so-and-so's here, and you remember so-and-so, and they're here, and they send their greetings. And it's like this, just this incredible word that you get from people. There was no other way to hear from folks. And so letters are just really, really amazing. And so this letter ends in a really personal way. And Peter shares a few things about a few people. He says, listen, I had the help of Silas, or Salvinus, which is really his Greek name, whom I regard as a faithful brother. Now, Silas may sound like a familiar name, and it should, because this is the Silas of Paul and Silas, who traveled with Paul on his missionary journey, was a partner in the gospel, was a close friend, really connected to Peter as well. And so Paul and Peter have this connection through Silas. But Peter says, listen, I've had the help writing this letter with Silas, who is a faithful brother. Which is a really cool way to address someone, right? Like he was a faithful brother. And I started thinking about this because Peter doesn't talk about Silas as he was a great philosopher, an unbelievable preacher, super smart, right? He had all these kind of attributes. He doesn't brag on him or say any of those kind of things. And certainly we know that he was a great partner in the gospel. He just simply says, I had the help of Silas, who is a faithful Brother. And a lot of people believe that Silas did one of two things. One, that he hand-delivered these letters, that his help to Peter was he actually took the letter from where Peter was writing in Rome all the way to these different places all over Asia Minor. He would hand-deliver this letter, and I think that was his role. A lot of people also think that maybe his role was scribe, that as Peter dictated the stuff out loud, Silas wrote it down faithfully. So in whatever way, he had this incredible sort of hand in this gospel letter that Peter's writing. And Peter takes a moment and says, I want to thank Silas, who's a faithful brother. And I thought about that a lot this week <clears throat> as I was looking at this text. And I thought if I could give my family or my friends, like my close friends, just I said, describe me in one word. What would that word be? And it was a cool exercise at first until I realized that faithful probably wouldn't make the top ten, right? Like, I know I've acted. I know who I am. I know what I've done. I know the way I've let people down. I know my failures. Like, I don't know that faithful is a word that makes the list. In fact, I don't know what makes the list. But if the closest people in your life had to define you or describe you in one word, what would they say? What would they say about you? If they had one word pinning this letter to people they loved and cared about, what would they say? And I think it's an interesting exercise because the legacy that we leave and who we are and the imprint we have on people is really valuable. And Silas, who's not a part of this letter anywhere else, played a valuable role in Peter's life and encouragement to him, faithful and loyal, not just to Peter, but to the gospel and to the Lord. And I guess if I got to the end of my life and my family or friends could say one word and faithful made the list, like what a, an incredible idea, right? Like Trevor was not much, but he's, he's faithful. It's a pretty cool way to think about Silas and a pretty interesting explanation of who he is. But Peter says, listen, Silas, faithful brother, grateful for him. 
With him as my helper, right, I have written to you briefly. Now, by all practical purposes, this is a brief letter. Uh, It's not long. It's five chapters, 105 verses, 2,476 words. By all kind of gospel accounts, it's not real long. It's not the shortest letter, definitely not the longest letter, but it's a brief letter, right? We've covered it in 16 weeks, probably could have gone 60, but it's a brief letter, right? He says, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying. So the two things. I've tried to encourage you, and I've tried to testify to something. This is what he says. I've tried to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. So Peter says this. He goes, with Silas, my faithful brother, who has helped me write this letter, deliver this letter, I have tried to do two things. I've tried to encourage, and I've tried to testify, which means I want you empowered. I want you to feel relieved. Remember where they are, scattered all over Asia Minor, facing all kinds of suffering and persecution. I want you to be encouraged, and I personally want to testify. In other words, give praise, thanks, and share my personal story, right, that this is what I have written is the true grace of God. So he says, my entire letter here is not to do anything else and to testify and encourage you that everything that I've written is a true grace of God. I started thinking about that for a moment. I was like, what in here in Peter's first letter encapsulates the most or this picture of the true grace of God, right? Because we've talked a lot. We've talked about suffering. We've talked about struggle. We've talked about victory. We've talked about all kinds of things. But if this whole letter encapsulates the true grace of God, where do we see that played out the most? And I found a couple of places, but I want to, want to just visit a couple of verses this morning in these two segments out of chapter 1. You may have to go way back and remember, but chapter 1 was this sort of beginning point before we start getting into the suffering where Peter kind of lays out sort of what the gospel is. We're talking about the true grace of God. Peter In, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he says essentially this, Praise be to God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of the dead. If you could encapsulate the good grace, the true grace of God, it would probably best encapsulate that one thought, right? Through, I want to give thanks and praise to God that through Jesus and his incredible resurrection, he is giving us new birth into a living hope. Now, we talked about this a lot back in you know, our first week, and so I won't get into it too much. But we all know that as a believers, we have to be born again. I've talked about what that means, a new birth, new creations in Christ. Dead is gone, the new has come, symbolism of baptism. All those things are wrapped up into this. I've been born again, <clears throat> not born of flesh, right, but born of the Spirit of God, right? But he says this, but what we've been born into is what's magnificent. We've been born into a living hope. Now, when we talk about hope, and I've mentioned this before, we talk about hope in terms of things that we don't know. There's sort of this unexpected nature to our conversations about hope. I hope it doesn't rain, right? means we long for it not to rain, but we don't really know. I hope that you arrive home safely, meaning I want you to get home safe, but I don't really know how that's going to go. Everything that we use the word hope surrounding typically in our culture is built on the unknown. It's not built on expectation. It's built on wishful thinking. So when we talk about hope, we always talk about, I really hope this works out, but I have no idea. When the Bible uses the idea of hope, biblical hope is actually not built on expect. It's not built on wishful thinking. It's built on expectation. And it's built on confident expectation. 
And so if you listen to these words of what Peter's saying, we have been born into a living hope through the resurrection. He's basically saying that we've been born into a promise, something true and secure. That it's not just, I hope when I die, I go to heaven. But that as a new creation in Christ, when I surrender my life to Jesus, I have been given a new life that begins in this very breath. And in that breath, there is a living hope. means that I am in something that is fully alive, that is full of confident expectation. And this is the true grace of God. Because you didn't do it. You didn't earn it. You didn't walk to it. You didn't make any effort. You didn't work your way into it. You didn't perform for it, and you didn't get it because you did something. The absolute true grace of God is that you are fully dead, and in your full deadness, God did something that you could not do for yourself, and he gave you new birth into a living hope, which means that even in the middle of suffering and struggle and the failures of your heart and all the things that you're going to do wrong and have done wrong, you are still fully alive and full of hope because you've been born into Christ, which means that this is not the end. That whatever life is tackling with and pushing you on and pressing you into is not your destiny. It's not who you are. But there is a confident expectation of a new life in Christ that is yours. That doesn't begin when you die, but begins in this very breath. One of the great misconceptions of the Christian life is eternal life begins when we take our last breath. The truth is eternal life begins when we say yes to Jesus. It means eternal life begins in this moment, abundant, true, real life. So if we talk about the true grace of God, what Peter's saying is this. He's saying that all the stuff that I testified to, I want you to be encouraged that even in your suffering and struggle, even the failures of your heart, persecution, life, even those unjust relationships, marriages, broken things, all the stuff that you're struggling with, all those suffering pieces, I want you to know that you have a full living hope that begins in this very moment because of Jesus. Full hope. A lot of us look at our lives with a sort of outsourced optimism that just thinks that if one day I can get there, things will be better. One day I can make a little bit more money. One day we can have a little bit more of this, a little bit more margin, a little bit more preview, a little bit more of this, then things will get better. The problem is we're buying into this idea of wishful thinking that somehow that is going to make life better when the reality is that in Christ we have the true expectant promise that life is full today. Not down the road and what we think will make it better, but the true rich fullness that comes from knowing Jesus, even in the middle of suffering and anxiety. Hope and joy and purpose begin in that moment, which means today is a suffering moment, is not a wasted moment. It's not a throwaway. Today, even in the midst of your fear, is a moment that God has given you new life in Christ. And so therefore, I can exchange that lie for truth. That the true grace of God is an expectant living hope. And if you're not living in that, you are missing what God is calling you to. And so Peter says this, I'm here to testify and encourage you that this is the true grace of God. And then he says this, stand fast in it. Now we talked about this the week that followed that. We talked about the idea that the Christian life is an action-oriented life, not a passive life. Being a follower of Christ is not something you are like you're tall or I have red hair or you're whatever. Being a Christian is something that marks your life into. It's an action. It's a condition of the heart. It's setting yourself up for a life of desperate and deep movement. The Christian life is a life of action. It is not a passive thing. And so what Peter says is that I want you to know that I've testified encouraging you into the true grace of God in which you have to stand fast in it. 
We talked about this last week. We talked about the devils roaring around, uh, walking around like a roaring lion, prowling like a roaring lion. We've got to stand firm and steadfast in the faith. But if you look at verse 13, chapter 1, he says this, Therefore prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled and set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. We realize that the gospel of Jesus Christ is an action-oriented life. We are called to action. When you say yes to Jesus, when you surrender your life to the living hope of Christ, you are called to a life of movement. And that movement is both mental and physical. And so Peter sets it up by saying, you've got to prepare your mind for action. But most of us don't want action in our Christian life. We want no part of action. Because action requires faith and trust. It requires surrender. And we want to stay as far away from that stuff as we possibly can. What we want is a life that follows Jesus close enough to see the benefits, but not have to give in, to not have to surrender, to not have to get sucked into, and to not have to give away, and to not have to trust, and not have to battle. We want to see the goodness of God without actually having to taste the goodness of God. The reality is that the Christian life is an action-oriented life. That when we surrender our life to Jesus, life doesn't just get better and easy. It actually gets better and oftentimes harder. Because the fullness, right, of God is displayed in you, which puts the enemy on full movement. Because the enemy wants to destroy your life. We talked about it last week. He wants to dethrone any opportunity you have to be gospel effective. He can't steal your salvation. The Bible's very clear about that. He cannot snatch out of God's hand what God has already claimed. Therefore, you are secure in who you are in Christ, but he can make you ineffective. He can render you fearful and helpless. The Christian life is built for action. And so Peter says, set your minds for action. In other words, prepare those minds because life is going to be full of movement. Action is not something we all want. We don't all want to be a part of that. But once you've tasted God's move in your life, you've seen what he can do, you've trusted him, you'll never want to turn back. So he says, set your mind for action and be self-controlled. I love that little simple idea is that he says that the next step in this process is to control yourself. And he's not talking about crazy, wild living. He's basically saying, live in a way where all of your focus is on Jesus. Take all the things that would serve you, that you think will make life better and great, right? And rein those in and give all of your focus and attention to the Lord. Control the parts of you that want to run and hide and scream the parts of you that want to fight the Lord for control, the parts of you that want to think that if I just do this, life will get better. Rain those in, focus your eyes on Jesus, and control the fact that you've been created by him for him. You have this new living hope, and that you've been created to be used by God. Every single one of you, myself included, will have an opportunity today, tomorrow, every day from now to be used by the Lord. In every relationship, and every breath, and every person that you know, it's an opportunity for God to use you. And if you're ready, if you wake up in the morning and you say, God, I want you to ready my heart to be used by you. I'm going to prepare me for conversations, for opportunities to trust you and engage with you and see where you're working and join you. I want to be used by you. It's a believer whose heart is ready to be action-oriented towards the Lord. 
But if every one of our prayers in the morning is, God, protect me, provide for me, give me this, give me that, make this go away, change this, alleviate this, me, 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 we're going to miss the move of God oftentimes. God's call is for us to die to ourselves and say, God, I want to join you where you are. And a life that's built for action is a life that's built on the movement and focus of God. And so Peter says, I want to encourage you and I want to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Fast is firm or steadfast. Like anchor your feet down and put them into that concrete of truth that you've been born in this living hope and you've got to be prepared for action. Peter knew what was to follow this letter, the reality. Same thing that happens when you walk out of this room, right? You're in here for an hour, you feel good, we sing, we hear the word a little bit, we feel great, but life happens on the other side of these doors, right? We've got to prepare our minds for action, the true grace of God, and anchor our feet in it. But Peter says, hear me, all of this that I've said to you was so that you would know that the true grace of God is real and that you would stand in it, anchored in it. Firm in it. And then he says, let me give you a little bit more encouragement. He says this as he kind of wraps all this up. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings. Which seems kind of like a weird statement. But really, it's not that hard to understand. Uh, when Peter talks about she who is in Babylon, he's talking about the church in Rome. Uh, throughout history, the greatest enemy of Israel uh, would have probably been Babylon. They were carried off into exile. The Romans associated themselves with the great empire of Babylon, and so oftentimes there was an association between Babylon and Rome, and Peter's writing from Rome, and so he says, she who is in, in other words, the church and the believers that are in Rome, they send their greetings. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because if you remember what we talked about way back when, these are believers that are scattered all over Asia Minor. They're alone. They may be with one or two other believers in an entire city or region. They were decentralized and moved all over the country so that Christianity would come to a grinding halt. They were exiled, and they were facing persecution. And they woke up every day realizing that they may be the day that I die for Jesus, and it felt at times as if God had forgotten me. People had forgotten us. But here comes maybe Silas coming up with this letter that Peter wrote, in which Peter says, those believers in Rome, the church, she, the body of Christ, we send her greetings. In other words, we haven't forgotten you. You're not out there all by yourself on an island, which is sometimes the most encouraging and greatest thing you can tell somebody in your life. When you know they're struggling and suffering, and as a follower of Christ, you can send them a letter, an email, a phone call, a text, or sit down with coffee with them and just look at them and say, I love you, you're not alone. You don't have to fix their problems, you don't have to answer them all, you don't have to have all the questions. You don't have to be able to relate to their deepest theological concerns. You just have to simply remind them that they're not alone. And that's what Peter was doing. He's saying, the entire church in Rome, where I am, we remember you. And we're grateful for you. And it may not sound like much to us, but it was an incredible reminder of the beauty of the nature of the body of Christ, which we're going to be looking at in the next weeks to come. The beautiful nature of the body of Christ. She in Babylon, well, she sends her greetings. Along with my son, Mark. Now, we know this is Mark of John Mark, the one that wrote the Gospel of Mark, who is not Peter's biological son, but most likely Peter had a role in his spiritual growth, maybe even leading him to Christ, if you want to use that kind of uh, language. But the idea is, is that Mark is with Peter there writing, and even Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, sends his greetings. In other words, these people that 
walk with Jesus, like they send their greetings as well, right? Peter and uh, Mark had the same relationship as Paul and Timothy, a discipling mentor relationship, which is very important gospel. He says, Mark sends his greeting. I've got Silas, who's been helping me as a faithful brother. The entire church in Rome remembers you. Mark knows you. John Mark. And he sends his greetings. And then Peter wraps all this up by simply saying, greet one another with a kiss of love and peace to all you who are in Christ. Greet one another with a kiss of love. This is weird to us, right? Uh, yeah, get Corona doing that nowadays. Too soon? Is that too soon? I'm not real sure. Yeah, maybe too soon. But this was a big part of culture. It was a big part of family culture. Oftentimes, family members greet each other with a kiss. Um, and Peter's encouraging, and not just Peter here, it's actually all through the New Testament. i got to read is greet each other with a holy kiss. Peter calls it a kiss of love. In other words, treat each other as family. Greet each other as family. That when you see each other, remember, they're not talking about, they don't have a church of 2,500 that's meeting in some new worship center. These are one or two believers scattered around town. And when you see one another, or when you bump into another believer, greet each other as family, even though you may not be anything like them. You may be from another country, another town, another place. You may be Greek, they may be Israelite. You greet each other with this holy kiss, which often was a kiss on the cheek, not some kind of weird sensual thing. Uh, or often not done between man and a woman, but a brotherly, sisterly love like, I'm really glad to see you. You encourage my heart because we're part of the same family. I've told this story a zillion times, but I'll never forget it. When we were in China, we were getting off a subway, which is like a billion people on the subway, crowded. And I was a giant there. I mean, a giant in fact, we went to an English language class, and one of the kids asked me, are you a giant from your country? And I was like, first of all, it's super offensive, right? <laughs> so work on your English, man, because... But he says, I said, no, no, no. So anyway, we're getting on the subway. This guy's getting off, and he locks eyes with me. And I can tell he's looking at A lot of people stare at me because, you know, I'm a big guy, and I'm head above everybody. But he looks at me, and he says, are you a believer in English? Which is a really weird question to be asked in China because we've been trained and taught that, well, we can't really be really public with our faith and we're working with the underground church there and it puts people at risk. And so I don't really know what to say, right? You don't want to be like, no, but you don't want to be like, hey, yeah, we're the police or whatever. You're like, come and get me. But, and so I just said yes. And he takes two steps and he throws his arms around me, which is weird, right? But bring it. I mean, here we are. Hug me. I'm good. Bring it in for the real thing. And he just lingers right there for like five seconds. And then he leaves, just walks off. He didn't ask me what church I went to, what denomination I was, or how big we were, what our budget was. Didn't ask me what we thought about the theological doctrine of X, Y, and Z. I didn't ask any of that. He just hugged me because I said I was a believer in Christ. This is what Peter and Paul are getting at when they talk about this stuff. What Peter's getting with a kiss of love, he's saying you're part of the same family. We spend so much time fighting about our differences as the body of Christ, we fail to see the things that really unite us. We're ma more mad about what they do or what they don't do or how they spend their money or they don't spend their money or what they're doing about this or that or dancing or not dancing or shirts or not shirts or whatever. That we just, I think they all wear shirts, but <laughs> if not, don't kiss people that's not wearing shirts. It all gets sideways from there. But greet each other with a holy kiss, right? A holy kiss. Which just basically means, look, you're part of the same family. Look, we're all from different places. 
different age groups, different walks of life, different places. Some of us have been going to church all our life. Some have just come over the past couple of weeks. Some of us are really denominationally oriented. Some of us have never been to a, a mainline church in our life. Some of us are this and that. Some of us are from Oklahoma or not, different sides of the tracks, all these kind of things. But we're united in this common family. It says, greet each other with this kiss. In other words, be family. Like, love each other the way you would love your brother who's been gone for two months. Be excited to see him, right? And then he finally wraps everything up by saying this. Peace to you who are in Christ. Now, we've talked about peace a lot. Every time Advent comes around, talk about Jesus, the Prince of Peace. We're not talking about peace like sit around and all get along and tolerance. This is never how the gospel talks about peace. The gospel talks about peace. It's talking about the alienation of our hearts from holy God. So we are enemies of God. We are at war. We are due his wrath. But Jesus, beautiful incarnation, God made flesh, came, walked this earth sinlessly and perfectly, died, took on all of our sin for humanity, atoned for that sin through the crucifixion, and then God raised him from the dead, thus bringing us life. Therefore, we have peace with God. Not peace with people. He's not talking about, let's go have peace. He's saying, as a follower of Christ, all of you who are in Christ, peace to you. Meaning that you have both the promise of peace and the reality of peace with God. That no matter what you're suffering through, walking through, dealing with, no matter how struggles your, what struggles your heart may be in or the failings that you may feel, the, the weak lack of faith you may feel like you have, in Christ, you have peace with God. Meaning you can rest in this singular truth. God has not forgotten you, and you are safe and secure in his hand. And as we talked about last week, in the right time, God will lift you up. So the peace that Peter is telling these believers is, listen, you may be in a place where suffering is real, where you may be alone and isolated, but remember, you have peace with God. It should be the greatest comfort of your heart that no matter what this world wants to bring you, whatever struggles, relationships, loss of jobs, loss of this, loss of that, fear of this, all of those things will not stand against the fact that you have peace with God, that you are not at war with him, that God has settled your heart through Christ. And therefore, what can the world do to you? What can man do to you? If you are secure and fully at peace with God, then bring it, like whatever. I know who I am. I don't have to be defined by the world. I have to be taught by them or what they say. But I am beloved and saved by the creator of the world. And I will press into faithful creator God and let the world say what it will. And if suffering comes, I'll embrace it. Why? Because I have peace in Christ. So Peter takes all of that and says, this is my encouragement and testimony. This is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. You are called to life. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity just to gather here, Lord, as a community. For the short closing that Peter has, it's packed with so much truth. I thank you for the picture of this letter I can't imagine what it might have been like to have it read to you 2,000 years ago. The encouragement that must have been in the believer's heart. And the fact that your word is so timeless, it is so encouraging to our hearts 2,000 years later. The things the believers were dealing with, though, may be different, are relatively the same. Suffering still exists. Heartache is real. Pain is real. But you are victorious. That your gospel is good and true and that your grace is right. And that, God, you have called us into something magnificent and that we have peace in you. And that no matter what we're walking through, whatever fear, whatever anxiety, whatever struggle or stress, 
There's hope and joy and purpose in those moments. They're not lost moments. They're beautiful moments in which we see you, become like you, and follow you. So Lord, as we wrap up our time in 1 Peter, we're grateful for your faithfulness. We're grateful for the way that you have continued to be God in our lives. So Lord, let us anchor ourselves to the fact that this is the true gospel and that we've been called to stand fast in it and that because of that, we have peace in Christ. We love you. We thank you for Jesus, Lord. We stand together and close our time in worship proclaiming these truths as the body of Christ united together that you are God, you are holy, and we love you. Let's close our time in worship together.